Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, we welcome to the podcast David Silverman. Dr. Silverman is a professor of history at George Washington University and is previously the author of Faith and Boundaries, Colonists, Christianity, and Community Among the Wampanoag Indians of Martha's Vineyard, 1600-1871, and Red Brethren, the Brothertown and Stockbridge Indians and the Problem of Race in Early America. Today, we're going to talk about his new and fantastic book, Thundersticks, Firearms and the Violent Transformation of Native America, which the Belknap Press, excuse me, of Harvard University Press published in 2016. Welcome to the New Books Network, David. Thank you for having me. So why don't we begin by having you talk a bit about yourself and your path to becoming a historian? Uh, Sure. Um, I'm a professor of history at George Washington University, where I've been teaching since 2003. Um, I came I came to history um, from a number of different directions. I grew up in Massachusetts, which is, as everyone knows, a rather historically-minded area. Um, I was particularly enamored with uh, the area around Old North Bridge in Concord um, and various historic sites around Boston. Um, but I think the... The real key to me becoming a historian um, was that I I took courses with a a number of first-rate professors when I was an undergraduate at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Um, Historians such as as Thomas Slaughter and Paul Clemens, Phil Graven, and uh, Calvin Martin, and um, they, they built up my excitement about the study of colonial America and, and Native America. And uh, from there, I was I was hooked. Um, I love I loved the topic. Uh, I loved the creative process of bringing the stories from that period uh, to light. And I've uh, I've never lost interest in it. And what brought you to this topic in particular, the topic of of firearms in Native America? A couple of different things. Uh, I think the the main impetus. Um, was firsthand experience working in a living history museum. Uh, after my master's degree year at, at the College of William and Mary, um, I didn't have enough money to move. <laughs> and I, was, I was ending the program there and starting something else. Um, and so I took a couple of jobs, one of which was as a, a colonial interpreter at Jamestown Settlement. So I, I dressed up in colonial garb and performed whatever tasks I was assigned uh, for the day. And among the, the tasks that I performed was militia duty. And I was taught to fire early 17th century replicas of matchlock muskets. And this, this event was uh, the highlight of the day for the throngs of, of 10 and 12 year old boys who were at the settlement on a given day. Um, and quite frankly, I liked it quite a great deal too. Um, I, you know, aside from uh, the energy that surrounded these, these exhibitions, I learned how to fire these weapons. And 
that process taught me a great deal. For one, it only took me a couple of weeks for I could get off a shot every 25 seconds or so. And I, I don't think I'm particularly adept at that type of activity. And so what that, that taught me that perhaps it didn't take quite as long to load and fire these weapons as historians often assume. I also learned something about the power of these weapons. I had a conversation with the staff member who was in charge of, of these replicas. I asked him, well, you know, how accurate are these, are these weapons? How powerful are they? Are they? And uh, he said, well, let me show you something. He pulled out a number of steel breastplates, uh, which he had set up on a field at 50, 75, and 100 yards and used as target practice. And what he told me is that he was able to hit the breastplate at 50 yards consistently, the breastplate at 75 yards fairly consistently, and the breastplate at 100 yards about half the time. And these breastplates showed evidence of grapefruit-sized holes in them from the power of these musket balls, which demonstrated to me um, the, the advantage of, of guns over the bow and arrow, which would never leave such a, a large wound, um, or in the particular case of the, of the breastplate, full. Um, and that got me thinking. Uh, it got me thinking that you know perhaps this truism which I was encountering in the historical literature that um, guns were slow and inaccurate and inferior to the bow and arrow might not be the case. Now, that was just a seed that was planted, but as I began my doctoral work, I kept not only encountering this truism, but also encountering primary source evidence which argued against it, in which Native people were making the acquisition of gun, guns, powder, and shot their first order of business when dealing with, with colonists, that they were negotiating for access uh, to those, those items and to blacksmithing, Almost every time that they sat down in diplomatic context with, with colonial authorities, um, and that they were using these weapons in war with other tribes, and that those, those groups that possessed these weapons in abundance were routinely winning victories over less well-armed qualities. That told me there was a big story here that historians were getting wrong. And eventually I reached the, the stage of my career where I had taught enough and read enough that I felt I could tell a broad synthetic story that I decided to take on the issue, hence this book. It's really the kind of story that once you point it out, it seems like all this information was really hiding in plain sight. Like when I was reading it, I had one of those forehead smacking moments, sort of like, oh, of course, how, how could no one have seen this before? It's one of those kind of books, and I really I liked reading it because of that. Well, I, I think that's right. And you know, part of what galvanized me to undertake this project is that when I would encounter these statements, again, about the superiority of bows and arrows over firearms, or that, and this, is a, this often was a, a statement that accompanied that supposed truism, um, that Native people traded for these weapons less because they were efficient tools than because of the so-called psychological effect, and that's the term you often encounter, of the pyrotechnics of the weapons. I could never find a footnote that led to any sources, right? This just was an idea which had become commonplace 
largely, I, I've, I've also noticed um, in the post-Vietnam War era, and uh, it, it, it struck me that um, this, this, these ideas needed scrutiny. So let's get into the book a bit, and um, I want to begin with maybe the most critical organizing concept that you introduce in the book itself, which is the idea of the gun frontier, as you put it, which in part you say you use because you're trying to disinvest what you call the F word of some of its baggage and repurpose it in a way that's that's useful and resonant. So how do you define the gun frontier and why do you find the concept of frontiers particularly salient despite that that word and that idea's long and sometimes tortured history? Sure. Um, so when I was in, in graduate school in, in the mid-90s, the concept of frontier uh, was under debate. Um, a lot of people had sworn off of it. There were others that who wanted to repurpose it, as I have in this book, as a, a zone of contact. Um, in, 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 in an area um, where contact between Native people and, and Europeans was fairly fresh, um, and I I recognize that uh, the, the, the front the term frontier um, carries uh, Turnerian implications of an east to west moving divide between white populations and native populations, but the term doesn't have to carry that kind of ideological baggage. In in the case of the gun frontier, what I'm trying to emphasize is that when new arms markets open up among Native people, it typically set off intertribal arms races in which certain groups would gain early command of that gun market, early de facto monopolies over the flow of of munitions in their particular uh, part of, of North America, and then would begin winning decisive victories against their, their intertribal rivals, thus forcing those rivals also um, to seek sources of guns, powder, and shot, both in order to defend themselves and in order to accomplish their, their offensive military aims. And I saw a process in which these new gun markets were moving around the continent, uh, proving decisive in intertribal rivalries, and ultimately in Indian colonial relations as well. And I, I thought it would be useful not only to point out um, that the frontier could be used as a lens for this process, but also to demonstrate that this frontier didn't move from east to west all, uh, uh, all the time, that there were north to south gun frontiers, south to north, um, and indeed, even west to east, that the Ternarian frontier, always moving from the east uh, to the west, um, needed to be repurposed and could be, could do so in a way that would shed light uh, on the on this process of the dissemination of guns in Native America. And in fact, you begin the book in the North American West with the, the well-told stories of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. But in order to get to that point, you first bring us all the way back to the colonial East Coast of the continent in the 17th century. So can you tell us how Native societies, particularly the Iroquois Confederacy, um, in what is today the American Northeast, how did they acquire firearms? And then how did doing so change not just their social circumstances, but also their politics and their economics? Sure. So... The the Five Nations Iroquois or Haudenosaunee of what's now upstate New York 
were the first native polity to really take advantage of, of firearms. And there's a couple of reasons that they were the first. Um, the, the main one is that they were in contact with the Dutch. And the Dutch in the early 17th century were the premier arms manufacturing nation of Europe. They were also the premier maritime trading nation. Of, of Europe, and they set up in the, in the Hudson Valley in the uh, in the 1620s and established a vibrant commercial relationship with the Five Nations Iroquois, uh, particularly with the easternmost Iroquois nation, uh, the Mohawks, in which the Iroquois people are providing uh, the Dutch with with furs, and the Dutch are providing the Iroquois with European manufactured goods, and for that matter, uh, wampum beads, shell beads that the Dutch acquire from native suppliers on Long Island Sound. By the 1630s, Dutch firearms technology had evolved to the to a point where it would be appealing to native people. Before the 1630s, the primary firearm was the matchlock musket, the very type of weapon that I fired when I was a reenactor at, at, at Jamestown. Um, and that was, that was a weapon in which firing the gun involved pulling on a lever. And I don't mean a trigger. I mean, really, a lever, yeah. um, which then lowered a lit wick, or a match, hence, hence the name matchlock, into a pan of gunpowder, thus starting the combustion process, which fired um, a musket ball. Those types of weapons weren't sought after, um, particularly by Native people, for reasons that I think are fairly obvious. Uh, you know, trying to hunt game, or for that matter, ambush people uh, with a uh, with a weapon that's producing smoke even before the point of fire um, isn't going to be particularly effective. What happens in the 1630s is that firearms technology develops to the point that we find that we have flintlock muskets in which the combustion process is formed not by lowering a lit wick into a pan of powder, but by pulling the trigger, thereby smashing a piece of flint against the steel plate, creating sparks which started the combustion process. That type of technology was avidly sought out by Native people. Um, it could be used to launch ambushes against other indigenous people. It could be used to hunt deer, um, which Native people did. Um, so the Iroquois uh, pick up on this technology very quickly and begin using it uh, to, to marshal attacks against other indigenous people, primarily in what's now um, the, great, the Eastern Great Lakes region, Southern Ontario, eventually, um, the Ohio River Valley, and even northern New England. In which, and this is part of the morning work uh, uh, process that uh, Daniel Richter um, so wonderfully articulated a few decades ago, in which Iroquois people are seeking captives from enemy tribes to adopt um, into their communities, thus buttressing up their, their populations. Uh, for for the better part of 30 years, the Iroquois advantage in arms, uh, which is facilitated by this relationship with the Dutch, made them the major indigenous military power in, in the Northeast. For Indian societies on the East Coast and West into the Ohio Valley region, you describe the 
especially the early colonial period, but the colonial era broadly, and the gun age as entirely overlapping periods. And in your words, you describe them as a period of terror and of high stakes gains and losses. Can you lay that out for us? Why were the stakes so high in this period? And why was violence so widespread after the introduction of firearms? Uh, There's a couple of of different reasons. Um, And you effectively have have two drivers of, of this gun violence on the East Coast. In the North, it was these Iroquois morning wars. And you know, again, the Iroquois are trying to um, acquire captives from neighboring peoples and even sometimes peoples very far afield in order to buttress their populations. Native people who wanted to avoid that fate um, had no choice but to acquire firearms themselves. And so there is a, a scramble in the wake of those, those Iroquois attacks by Native people to open up trade lines to various European peoples who could supply them with munitions. In, in the Southeast, the main driver is the Indian slave trade, in which Native people are providing Native captives to primarily to South Carolina for enslavement. And in exchange, they're acquiring firearms. In the case of the, the Southeast, um, it, it, there's an interesting linkage to the Iroquois story. The first native group to establish a slave trading alliance with, with first Virginia and then South Carolina is a group that became known as the Westos. And they're named after the gun trading entrepot of Westover, a uh, plantation that around the site of modern-day day Richmond. Um, this group was originally known as the Eries, um, and their original homeland was on the shores of Lake Erie. They were displaced by Iroquois gunmen, and it appears that they, they were determined never to suffer that kind of fate again, um, and thus they sought out firearms wherever they could. And what they discovered is that the Indian slave trade was the main means by which to build up their arsenals. In turn, in the Southeast, Native people began to face a very difficult choice. They could either participate in the Native American slave trade and thus acquire munitions to defend themselves, or they would become sitting ducks for slave-raiding, gun-toting marauders. Um, And so it creates a, a vicious cycle in which the slaves for guns trade spirals outward to encompass the entire region as far west as the Mississippi River, as far south as as Florida, north into um, the Chesapeake Piedmont. And one of the things that this book does incredibly well by by tracing the gun trade, I feel, is um, it shows how interconnected um, colonial and Native America really were. That really to just look at any one of these case studies in a vacuum really um, hides much more than it reveals. Um, The book does that very well. Right. And, you know, one of the, the points that the book tries to make and that I often try to make in, in my teaching is that early colonial economies almost always depend on the trade with Native people. Now, that phase passes in uh, the case of, of English settler colonies over time, but the fur trade remains the very reason for being for Dutch New Netherland during its entire life. New France, obviously, uh, Russian Alaska, um, 
and in some colonies like like Pennsylvania and South Carolina and New York for quite a long time. And in those relationships, colonists have to provide their native trade partners with the goods that they want. And native people wanted a whole host of goods, metal tools, kettles, especially cloth. But they could choose to do without those items if they wanted to. They, they didn't want to, but they weren't matters of life and death. Native people, once a gun frontier emerges in their neck of the woods, had to acquire guns, powder, and shot in order to defend themselves against other indigenous people. And colonial suppliers responded in kind. And this, in turn, made the, the gun trade not only a source of profit, but an essential part of colonial Indian diplomacy. And one, one sees that in almost any uh, diplomatic relationship between colonies and empires on the one hand and indigenous people on, on the other. And I want to stay in the Northeast just for one more minute, because the story that you tell about King Philip's War really exemplifies a lot of what you're saying. Because at the same time that the trade in enslaved people and guns is transforming the Southeast, this war also erupts in New England. And, you know, the the history of King Philip's War has been written about very capably elsewhere. But you really put in plain sight the fact that the roots of that war... Um, its bloodshed, the tactics, even the outcome itself were all suffused by gun violence and the gun trade. So can you tell us a bit about the relationship between firearms and that conflict in particular? Uh, sure. Um, you know, I think very often, too often, um, historians characterize uh, the Indian colonial relationship in New England as if uh, the English are in control of things. And uh, I, yeah, I think a story of King Philip's War told through the lens of, of the gun frontier um, exposes just how weak that line of interpretation is. From the very beginning of, of the New England colonies, the English can plainly see that arming their native neighbors is a risky proposition because even though it might produce um, profits and um, a healthy political relationship in the short term. In the long term, it, it threatened um, to make potential native enemies all that more formidable. Nevertheless, these colonies were utterly incapable of stemming the flow of arms to indigenous people. There's a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is that for all of their pretenses to hegemony, colonial governments were quite weak. And by that, I mean not only in terms of asserting their jurisdiction over Native people, but even over their own people. The fact of the matter is, a black market trade in guns, and for that matter, liquor, thrived in early colonial New England. And the reason is that Native people offered um, uh, furs, and wampum, and for that matter, land of great value to their colonial neighbors and demanded munitions in return. Another reason is that the Dutch were the the close neighbors of the New England colonies. And even though the Dutch population remained small throughout the existence of New Netherland, Dutch influence in the region was great, largely by virtue 
of the Dutch serving as suppliers of munitions to indigenous people. And so the Dutch flood the region <laughs> with, uh, with muskets, powder, and shot. Uh, the New England coast, as anyone who has traveled it knows, um, is full of opportunity for maritime traders who want to pull into a cove, um, pull into a bay uh, or a river mouth, unload, unload their catch, and then sail off. Uh, for that matter, native people, native people in southern New England can very easily travel to Dutch trade posts, uh, many of which were in very close locales, such as Narragansett Bay, Block Island, uh, Buzzards Bay, and what's, what's now Massachusetts, in order to trade with the Dutch. Most of New England's primary English merchants were closely tied to the Dutch of New Netherland, who were the main suppliers of manufactured goods from Europe. And so you, you add all that together, and it makes for a vibrant gun trading economy. Another factor in all this, of course, is the fact that you have multiple jurisdictions and several different tribes in the areas. There wasn't just one English colony. There were several. And they were competing with each other uh, for Indian influence and for land. And among the ways that they could achieve their ends was by plying Native people with munitions, um, even if it was officially illegal. There were also multiple native polities that were rivals with each other, Wampanoags and Narragansetts, Narragansetts and Mohegans, and, and right on down the line, all of whom wanted to acquire munitions in order to tilt the intertribal balance of power. What all of this meant was that by the time we get to the eve of King Philip's War, Native people are armed to the teeth with the very best in European firearms technology. Uh, flintlock muskets provided largely um, by, by the Dutch. Now, you ask the question of, uh, of how the start of King Philip's War um, is tied into this gun frontier. And I think that uh, there's a number of different ways in which this is, uh, this is the case. Um, one is that English confiscation or attempts at confiscation of native firearms was among native people's primary grievances leading to the war. Um, in the case of, of the Wampanoags, uh, the, the English of Plymouth um, had attempted to subjugate him during a, uh, a war scare in 1671 by confiscating the weapons of, of uh, his people. And then during the, uh, the early weeks of King Philip's War, when the mainland Wampanoags rose up against Plymouth, the New England colonies uh, went on um, a series of arms confiscating expeditions against Native people who they suspected might be conspiring with the Wampanoags. Um, and I, I contend that that's the main force the main factor that drove Native people who otherwise wanted to remain neutral, and some of whom even wanted to, re uh, to serve as allies with the English, into the warring Indian camp. Certainly true in the Connecticut River Valley, um, and could have very easily been the case um, in a num number of other locales. You also describe um, the critical role the gun frontier and its shifting borders played in the story of the Seven Years' War. And it's, a, it's an interesting story, and it's told very well, but since we're, we're somewhat limited on time, and since I want to move to the American West, rather than linger on the eastern half of the continent, I want to move us instead west to the Pacific. So 
Can you sure. can you tell us how guns and otter, of all things, were intimately connected in the Pacific Northwest? And um, how did the sudden creation and then the quick collapse, as you tell it, of that region's gun frontier change its inhabitants and the politics in the region? Right. So the uh, the Pacific Northwest, again, and I'm defining that as uh, the the Alaskan Panhandle, um, modern day British Columbia, and uh, what's now Washington State. And, and Oregon had been largely cut off from the non-native outside world up until um, the late uh, the late 18th century. You know, the Russians start to make incursions into the area in in the 1740s, um, but that's a rather small scale operation. What really opens up that region to global trade were the voyages of of, uh, of Captain Cook in the 1770s and the publication of his journals. Among the things that uh, Cook discovered during his journey was that otter pelts acquired from Native people in the Pacific Northwest could be sold at a um, very steep profit in China. And as, as any of your listeners know, for centuries, it had been the quest of Europe to find something that they could trade for Chinese silks, porcelains, um, uh, teas, and the like. With otter pelts, they discovered that item. And so it creates almost overnight a rush of, of European and American merchants to this previously isolated sector of the world. In particular, merchants from Boston um, flow into the area and merchants from Britain. Uh, indeed, Americans become known in that among Native people in that part of the world as Boston men. What Native people wanted in exchange for these otter pelts were munitions. And boy, did they get them. Um, the fact of the matter was that none of these merchants intended to settle in this part of the world. And so it was a very little danger to them to unload boatloads of munitions into native hands in exchange for these otter pelts. Give you an example of what I'm talking about. One ship uh, called called the Boston in 1802 uh, carried a cargo of 3,000 muskets uh, to this area, and that's just one ship among many. And what happens is those native leaders who controlled harbors um, with deep anchorage um, that uh, could provide safety uh, to ships from the sometimes very harsh weather of, of the Pacific, and who controlled intertribal trade networks that extended deep into the interior and up and down the coast, could corner this gun market for greater or lesser periods of time and use it to become ascendant in their particular uh, in their particular region. I focus in particular on the role of the New Chalnuth or the Nuka. Um, uh, Native people of what's now the west coast of Vancouver Island under the Chief McQuinna, um, who became dominant in the trade in the late 1780s and 1790s, and the Clinkets of Sitka on what's now Baranoff Island in uh, the Alaskan Panhandle, who cornered the trade in their particular neck of the woods to the point that they become uh, very formidable military rivals of the Russians who are trying to encroach on their territory. The problem for Native people in this area is that the otter was an exhaustible resource, um, not unlike uh, most of the other resources that Native people 
uh, on the east part of the continent were uh, were harvesting in exchange for guns. And so within a matter of years, or, you know, really we're talking about a decade at most two in uh, most, most of these locales, they exhaust the otter, after which the merchants then move on. Um, and so native people who had previously been militarily dominating their neighbors by virtue of their control over the trade now became victims of people on other parts of the coast who were dealing with the gun merchants. So far, uh, we've discussed gun frontiers in places primarily where Europeans and native societies had direct contact and especially direct trade. But that wasn't always the case, as you tell it. So who were the middlemen of the Arkansas and the Red River regions? And how were they emblematic, as you put it, of, of Indian power? Right. So... Um in, in various sectors of North America, small communities of Native people who are otherwise at risk of getting crushed by these, uh, these well-armed Native polities carve out safe diplomatic and profitable commercial niches for themselves by serving as middlemen between European markets and large, powerful Native polities. In the case of uh, the, the Southern Plains, the group that, that plays that role are the, the Wichita's, uh, originally the Arkansas and later the Red River Valleys. They become the primary middlemen between the Comanches to their west and markets on the Mississippi River to their east, French, Spanish to a lesser degree, and eventually British and, and American. The Wichita's, rather than colonists or Americans themselves, were the primary suppliers of, of arms to the Comanches during a, during a period of time in which the Comanches were ascendant. One sees a similar dynamic on the northern plains, where the Crees and the Assiniboines of the Canadian subarctic served as middlemen between Hudson Bay Company posts on Hudson Bay and French trade posts on Lake Superior, carrying those those munitions to the Blackfeet of the Northern Plains and Rocky Mountain West, who, like the Comanches, were the ascendant equestrian power in that particular region. And I did not know much about the history of the Blackfeet and their power uh, in the Northern Mountains and on the Northern Plains in the Upper West. It was sort of a, a blank spot in my own knowledge of, of Native North America. Can you tell us a little bit more about them in particular and how firearms helped them to grow so powerful and then what happened to them? Uh, sure. So the Blackfeet, as I mentioned, originally are acquiring their weapons through uh, the Crees and the Assiniboines. And what the, what the Blackfeet would trade uh, to the Crees and Assiniboines for those munitions were beaver pelts that they harvested from, uh, from the Rocky Mountains. Crees and Assiniboines would then carry those, uh, those furs back to their trade posts to the north and to the east, acquire munitions, and then the cycle would begin anew. Eventually, though, the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company, um, Hudson's Bay Company being a British firm, Northwest Company being a, a Canadian firm operating out of, out of Montreal, began moving up the Saskatchewan River directly into Blackfeet territory. That allowed the Blackfeet to cut out the Cree and Assiniboine middlemen and begin trading directly with those companies. And it provided them with a great advantage that they had two companies vying for their business in that they could drive down prices 
through that competition, very often Northwest Company and Hudson's Bay Company posts were located right next to each other. Um, I mean, it's not unlike a McDonald's Burger King dynamic, for real, um, in, in, in this particular um, neck of the woods. And the Blackfeet begin building up um, quite an arsenal, which they use to offset the, adva- the advantage of the horse that their enemies, the Shoshones, enjoyed um, from the Rocky Mountain region. Eventually, uh, the Blackfeet build up their own herds of horses and combine them with their robust arsenals to become the ascendant power on the northern plains. That power becomes all the greater as American fur trade interests began to move up the Missouri River Valley in, um, in the, uh, the early 1800s, eventually culminating in, in the creation of a number of trade posts on the, on the Missouri. Those trade posts um, certainly wanted beaver pelts, but what they were trading for with the Blackfeet um, disproportionately were bison robes. Um, and that was a great advantage to the bison, uh, to the, uh, the Blackfeet, because hunting bison was the base of their subsistence. And thus, this robe trade was but an extension of, of their food quest. Once that dynamic is set up, this gave the Blackfeet all kinds of options for acquiring arms. They could trade with American firms on the Missouri. They could play, they could trade with Anglo-Canadian firms, uh, up on, on the Saskatchewan. Um, and it, Make, it left them armed to the teeth. It wasn't sustainable, though, um, for a whole host of reasons. One is uh, that the Blackfeet fall into the same trap as, say, the, the otter hunters of the Pacific Northwest. The bison was a diminishing resource as the 19th century progressed, particularly as white hunters began to take a massive toll on, on the bison population, thus leaving them with very little to sell. But equally important was the fact that the intertribal arms race caught up with them and that the Blackfeet were eventually faced with Native people as well-armed and as well-mounted as they were. And the toll of those intertribal wars was absolutely enormous. A final consideration is that these trade posts, which benefited the Blackfeet so greatly in the short term, were essentially the advance guard for white colonialism. They served as vectors for the introduction of terrible epidemic diseases into Blackfeet country. Um, they served as the headquarters by which uh, uh, um, miners could go and explore Blackfeet territory. Uh, they became the, the anchors by which white ranchers began to move into Blackfeet territory. To the point that by the time we get to the mid-19th century, the Blackfeet economy is collapsing, the Blackfeet Blackfeet uh, population is plummeting, and they're in very little position to militarily resist white American encroachment on their territory. Which brings us back to the story of the Lakotas and of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, um, the, the stories of which you begin the book with. However... However, that's not the whole story. And in your epilogue, you describe um, Indian rights activists and the American Indian movement in particular and how they used guns as a potent symbol for their movement, particularly during the Wounded Knee takeover in 1973. Can you tell us about that and how guns were used in that particular moment in history? Sure. Um, the, The AIM movement, among other things, appropriated the, the symbols of, of Plains Indian warriors in the 19th century to assert Native American agency, Native American masculinity, 
Um, and the idea that Native people were powers who should be recognized and reckoned with. And so AIM protesters, male protesters uh, above all, very often made it a point when media was around um, to demonstrate that they wielded guns. It was their way of saying that they were not going to take the injustices uh, perpetrated against them by American society sitting down any less than their ancestors in the 19th century had. Now, they weren't going to outgun white authorities, um, and that was that was demonstrated um, uh, amply um, at the you know the ultimate failure of of the AIM protest uh, to take over uh, the site of of Wounded Knee. Um, nevertheless, I think the the symbolism of of AIM members appropriating the gun, or rather, uh, using the gun. Uh, to assert uh, their their politics uh, speaks to the main point of uh, of my book when it comes to the issue of Indian colonial relations and ultimate Indian subjugation, and that is this: colonial Americans, later white Americans, didn't subjugate Native people because they had an advantage in arms. Native people weren't outgunned by Euro American society. Because of native savviness in opening up multiple lines of of uh, munitions uh, to their societies, they were almost always as well armed, if not better armed, than the colonial forces that faced them. The reason that native native people ultimately were subjugated to Euro American authority is that they were swarmed. That white white society could fight a losing war against well-armed Native gunmen longer than Native people could fight a winning war against white societies. Their populations uh, were were so disproportionate um, that Native people couldn't spare the lives that were required to, to mount a, a successful defense. It's a powerful argument and a, a remarkable book that I really, truly enjoyed reading. Um, and now that it's done and it's on bookshelves like my own, do you have another project in mind? Do you have a sense of where you're going to turn next historically? I do. Um, 2020 is coming, the 400th anniversary of the founding of, of Plymouth Colony. And as many of us know, anniversaries are a rare opportunity for professional historians to reach a general public. Hmm with what we know. Um, so I'm using this opportunity to tell a Wampanoag-centered history, both of Plymouth Colony and the Thanksgiving holiday. What I want to do is, is use this book to challenge the notion that Wampanoag people, through inherent friendliness and naivete, welcomed the English into their, um, into their, uh, their territory and conceded to colonialism. Um, what I think we'll see is that the story is a great deal uh, more complicated uh, than the Thanksgiving myth would have it. I also want us to see, by listening to the voices of modern-day Wampanoag people, about what it's like to live through one Thanksgiving season after another after another in which this myth is, is trafficked, that this 
this myth is part of the larger edifice of white nationalism and that it treats our native countrymen like second-class citizens by reducing their history and their suffering to caricature. And I want a larger reading public um, to ruminate on on that issue and think if think about whether we want to uh, we want to be uh, running our holiday this way. Well, when it comes out, I very much look forward to reading it. David Silverman. Well, oh, sorry, go for it. <laughs> No, no, that's quite a way. I, I, I look forward to your thoughts on it. <laughs> uh, David Silverman is a professor of history at George Washington University and is the author of Thundersticks, Firearms and the Violent Transformation of Native America, which was published by the Belknap Press of the Harvard University Press in 2016. David, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.